Got some uh, significant things to talk about this morning. Uh, How about I pray for God's help as we come to look at the Bible together. Heavenly Father, we pray today you'd help us to concentrate on your word, to hear what you are saying, and to uh, know you better as a result, and to act in love towards each other more as a result. Amen. Big question series, lots of random topics we're just going to do for the next few weeks. Uh, First one, what's God have think about Harry Potter and Halloween? Um, It might sound like I've got the trivial one, it's actually not trivial at all. Um, In the early 2000s, when when, when the Harry Potter books were huge, and I think the fourth one was out at this point, I went to a Christian bookshop and there was a pile of brochures there that was just like an A4 letter basically, um, that somebody had written, and it said, what does God really think of Harry Potter was the title. And so I took one and I read it. Um, the brochure was written by a woman who used to be a witch. Uh, she converted to Christianity, and she was deeply concerned that Christians would ever read Harry Potter. She argued in this brochure that uh, it was obviously demonic, it was teaching kids evil magic spells, and that she claimed that specifically every copy of Harry Potter novels had a demon assigned to them, so that when your children buy one, the demon follows them home and harms them. And she was very sincere about that. She was very worried about that. Uh, I did notice that it was called, What Does God Really Think of Harry Potter? And it didn't mention any Bible verses at all. Uh, If you're going to write something called, What Does God Really Think About? Make sure you cite the Bible as a good start. But uh, I couldn't just dismiss her concern as ridiculous. Uh, It seems that she was sincere. She was a sincere Christian believer with a genuine concern. And I had no reason to doubt her story. What are you supposed to do with Harry Potter? What are you supposed to do with that? I could make her argument stronger, actually. Um, Listen to what God told Israel in the Old Testament about uh, about witchcraft. This is talking to the nation of Israel. It says, When you enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire. Yes, they did that. Who practices, practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft or casts spells, or who's a medium or a spiritualist, or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. Because of these same detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. God hates witchcraft. He hates falsehood. He hates any alternative to knowing the true and living God. Because it misleads people, has terrible practices associated with it often, but uh, more than that, it's leading people away from the true and living God of where salvation is. And God calls that evil, and I call that evil. Uh, and so our big question today really is, uh, how should Christians respond to customs, traditions and stories that have some sort of association with false religions, demonic powers and with evil? That's a pretty significant question. Um, and it's a very wide-ranging question. Um, when I was preparing this sermon, um, I walked past the TV and my son was watching this. Hercules, the Disney movie, and I go, yeah, there's, uh, it's a fun adventure story, Hercules saves the day and fights the baddie and that sort of thing, but of course, it's kind of got a serious background as well, doesn't it? Um, because Hercules was a figure in Greek legend, and people once worshipped Zeus and offered sacrifices to those gods that are now silly cartoon characters. Is this just, is this blasphemous, horrible stuff that Christians should avoid? Or is this so far distant that we don't have to worry about it anymore? Because nobody I know worships Zeus, do they? Or perhaps we've just, by the time you're able to make a TV show like Kevin Sorbo's Hercules, it's just so ridiculous that nobody worries about it anymore. Uh, 
We've got a lot of important things to think about today, friends. Um, I want to give you a framework that we're going to use to uh, think through this important issue. Um, Basically, my framework is about the levels of connection that a, a customer tradition or a story has to actual idolatry and false, false religion. How many, what's the level of connection to it? The most distant connection is going to be that it's historically associated with it. In the distant past, this originated with this false religion and now we kind of have an aspect of that tradition today and it's just associated with that. So perhaps the Hercules movie is in that category. Should Christians actively have anything to do with customs, traditions and stories? that have any kind of background in evil practices, no matter how distant. Maybe the question will come to you, somebody will say, did you know that Christmas was actually a pagan festival that replaced that date with a, with a Christian festival? Now, historically, that might not be true, actually. It might be true. But does that make the 25th of December a day we shouldn't celebrate a Christian thing because of its historical association? That's, that's the most distant level of, of connection. Uh, the second one, well, what if it's presently associated with evil beliefs, morality and practices? What if people today think that that custom traditional story, it's connected to things that are anti-God? What, for example, do you do with people who read Harry Potter? They say that it's a current false religion that's being promoted in Harry Potter. Is, people associate it with that false religion. Does that make it bad? Next level of connection. We're going to be thinking about that today, obviously. Some practices, some uh, customs, traditions and stories might seem like doing that custom or traditional story is actually joining in, actually participating in that, in that other religion, right? So uh, am I joining in on something that God hates even though I don't realise it when I dress up as a witch for Halloween, for example? I haven't done that, but <laughs> just theoretically. Is it participating in something demonic? Is it opening us up to spiritual forces that God warns us about? And whose tradition of the... Whose interpretation of the tradition is right anyway? So if I ask my neighbours what's Halloween about, I'll tell you what they'll say. It's very simple. Kids go and knock on doors and get candy and they dress up in stupid costumes to do it. That's what Halloween's about. If I ask a witch about it, I'll get a very, very different story about the spiritual significance of Halloween. Who's right? Completely different example. student from Hong Kong is converted to Christianity, their father dies, and they're invited, obviously, to the funeral. Now, that funeral will involve ancestor worship, which is idolatry. And he's conflicted, and he says, I I can't be involved in worshipping, giving religious homage, participating in ancestor worship, and it's a real conflict for him. To what extent can Christians participate in customs, traditions, and stories that are expressions of devotion to other spiritualities? Can I join in without joining in, kind of is the question there. The last one, I hope, is obvious if you're a Christian person that you can't do it at all. It shouldn't even be a question. Can I adopt the beliefs and customs that are like right in the middle of these, these uh, other religions and join in? Can I be a witch and a Christian too, basically? Can I be a Buddhist and Christian too? No. God hates the idolatry of witchcraft. He hates the idolatry of Buddhism. And he calls all those people to repent of their false spirituality and turn to Jesus instead. Very clear can't have anything to do with adopting other religions or kind of adding them to Christianity. But the difficult ones are in the middle there. What about customs that are associated with bad things or that maybe doing them involves participating in bad things? Well, that's what's going to occupy us today. Um, Let me tell you about Halloween. Um, Halloween was traditionally called All Hallows' Eve. Uh, It got shrunk to Halloween because Scottish people can't say Eve properly. Um, (laughs) And, and it was called Halloween. 
Uh, it was traditionally a medieval church festival that was started in the 8th century called Hallowtide. Um, it was a Christian ceremony. It's over 1,300 years old. And because it's tradition, you should expect that it's changed over time in different places. People practice it in different ways. And it's meant lots of different things to lots of different people. And that it's very, very hard to pin down what Halloween's about historically. Really hard. I, I can't figure it out, honestly. Um, people tell different stories. Um, so there's a church festival called Hallowtide that started as a way to remember the dead. Unfortunately, uh, over time for some people, it became a way to pray for, to the dead or pray for the dead, which aren't Christian practices. Um, other people will tell the story of the origin of Hallowtide in a, a Gaelic festival called Sarwin, which is that Samhain word there. Again, they pronounce words different than us. Sarwin, which occurred on the same date um, as, as what we do Halloween now. Um, the significance for them was apparently the veil between the realm of the dead and the physical world on that evening and during that time kind of gets thinner so that evil forces can kind of come through and influence you and attack you and so you put on a scary mask to scare them away instead and is that where trick-or-treating came from? Maybe, maybe not, I don't know. It's complicated. Uh, other people, it's just prank nights, scare the life out of your neighbours. Uh, like, what does it mean? It's very hard to pin down historically. And more recently, of course, uh, we've added gothic horror symbols to Halloween. And so we've got modern scary monsters that we add into our traditions. So in short, over time, the thing we call Halloween has collected a massive variety of customs, traditions and superstitions, particularly spooky ones. Uh, and in our nation today, on 31st of October, you'll have witches celebrating Sarwin. You'll have Christians observing remembrance of the dead. You'll have Reformed Christians celebrating a thing called Reformation Day because the 31st of October is a very important date for us as well. won't talk about that now. Um, and, of course, you'll have a lot of children dressing up in stupid costumes getting candy off strangers. And that's what it's about to them. Uh, in fact, I think that's the dominant practice of Halloween today. Uh, Halloween is the second highest grossing uh, holiday in America after Christmas. Uh, 25% of all American candy is sold for Halloween. A full quarter of American candy is Halloween candy. It's massive. Uh, and for most people in Australia, it's taken off here recently as well, uh, most people, Halloween has nothing to do with serious spirituality at all. You put on a silly costume, you go to your neighbour's house, and you get food that's bad for you from them. <laughs> Does that make it safe? Harry Potter. Harry Potter, if you don't know, is a seven-book series. It's about a young orphan called Harry Potter who discovers he's a wizard. He goes to a school to be trained as a wizard called Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry and he has adventures with his friends in a school that doesn't seem to have any occupational health and safety policies at all. Uh, over the course of seven books, uh, the big baddie Voldemort becomes a bigger and bigger threat and they defeat him and that's the end of the series. Um, my synopsis is this long, come on. Um, yeah, it's, it's good story writing, I think. It's great uh, at, at that level. Um, many Christians, though, have been really conserved that it promotes witchcraft, specifically the religion of Wicca. Uh, it's making kids interested in dynamic religious stuff that they'll try out in real life. Um, the response has been, well, actually, if you know anything about Wicca, there's, there's no religion in Harry Potter at all, did you notice? There's, there's no religious references in Harry Potter, almost. It's, it's, it's really absent. Um, and Wiccan followers will say, well, actually, that's about as Wiccan as the Lord of the Rings. I mean, 
the magic isn't Wiccan. <laughs> it's just a, a mishmash of generic magic and generic fantasy, and, and, and there isn't anything Wiccan about it at all. In fact, a lot of it's contrary to Wiccan teaching. It's just make-believe mechanics. Like, I just make-believe that this has power. If I say the right word, it does something. Like, go to next slide, and it does it kind of thing. It's just make-believe mechanics has been the response. But even if you accept all that, there's a really good concern. Will this fiction lead children to take an interest in witchcraft and other practices that God detests and are, in fact, demonic? And that's a really good question. And I'm going to come back to that right at the end. Uh, It's a really good question. So here again is our concern for today. Uh, How should Christians respond to customs, traditions and stories that have associations with false religions, demonic powers and with evil? Harry Potter and Halloween, potentially two examples of that. Um, And they're really easy examples, frankly. You want to know a really hard example, a really hard issue? Christian friends, what do you do with food sacrificed to idols? You're saying, I've never had to think about it. We read the Bible reading talking about food sacrificed to idols and I'm going... It's never been part of my experience. Well, it's actually very significant for a lot of people. If you go to a Hindu country and you were converted out of Hinduism to be a Christian, chances are you'll think this part of the Bible is about as important as it gets, about as direct an application to my life as it gets. The Bible isn't just for me, it's for all of God's people. But even leaving that aside, the principles that the Apostle Paul teaches in this passage, I believe are exactly the same principles you use to weigh up Harry Potter and Halloween and all that sort of stuff? How do we respond to it? The question Paul's responding to in those passages is, how should Christians in Corinth respond to the fact that there's food and there's feasts that have direct associations with false religions, demonic powers and with evil, and they are everywhere in their society? How do we respond to that? Now, I wanted you to imagine for a moment, thought experiment... Uh, you are a non-Jewish, you're just a, you, you can be whatever nationality you want, I don't care, but you live in Corinth in the 40s, the 0040s. For as long as you can remember, your life has been utterly religious, everything in it has been religious. Um, you regularly take animals for sacrifice to the temple as part of your religious worship, it's a almost daily thing for you, in the hope that the gods would hear you and ensure that your hard work prospers and life would go well for you. And here's one of the main issues in your life. Let me paint a picture of what idolatry looks like in your experience or worship of these gods. Here's you. You go to the temple where there's these idols. You bring some animals that you've bred or whatever. You bring them, you kill them, you, with the priest's help. wouldn't be very good at that. And you offer them to these statues. Now, people look at that and go, that's stupid. Why would you offer an animal to a statue? Well, they're not offering the animal to the statue at all. They're not stupid. They knew the statues weren't gods, but the statues are kind of a conduit to the presence of the god because gods are beyond the statue. They live in like god space out there somewhere and we can't actually access them directly. And so you make a statue of the god and whatever you do to the god, kind of the god hears that and it reaches them. So you offer sacrifice to the god and it reaches the god. So it's going beyond the statue into god space and you're honouring the gods and they hear you and do what you want. You go home. What happens to the food, the meat? Well, the priests eat some of it. That's their living. And they take the rest to the meat market and sell it. And half the economy of Corinth has food in it that's been sacrificed to idols. It's just, everything's just compromised by idolatry. Idolatry is built into their economy. 
Now, one day you, in Corinth, hear the message of Jesus. Uh, You hear somebody saying, Jesus died for your sins. He has risen from the dead. He has ascended into heaven, and one day he will judge the world. No one else. He will judge the world. Your entire way of life is unmasked at once. This Jesus has been exalted above every power, spiritual, physical, whatever. And that means your gods are powerless before him. And you realise you must turn from these gods, these idols, and become a Christian. That wasn't an easy decision, but you're glad you did it, even though your life is much harder now, because you live in a city where idolatry is everywhere. All of the food in the marketplace is probably contaminated by idol worship. If you go to a friend's house for a meal, chances are that meal will be dedicated to a god or two. How can I live in exclusive devotion to Jesus in a world like this? It's a bit like this sign. Everything that has that may contain traces of nuts. It probably does. There's their concern. Everything in that market may contain traces of idolatry and we know that God hates idols. It's spiritual poison. It's defiled by association. And so you go to church at Corinth. Here's your brothers and sisters in Christ. They're going to help me out with my really difficult concern. You say, I don't know how to follow Jesus in a society like ours. Everything available to eat is probably soiled by idol worship. Some guy at church with no background in any of that stuff chirps up and says, hey, don't be so silly. We Christians know there's only one God. There's no spiritual powers behind that stuff. And to someone with a background in idolatry, that is the most harmful thing they've heard. You mean to say that that idol, that false religion, has no spiritual significance at all? That idol is the symbol of my past enslavement. I hate that idol now. That idol's food is tainted by its being devoted to that false god and to spiritual powers opposed to the Lord Jesus. And refusing to eat foods sacrificed to those idols is my line in the sand. This side, devotion to Jesus. That old side, worship of false gods. And amidst this struggle, fellow Christians come along and say, oh, it's nothing, it doesn't matter. And your angry reply will be, well, how can you encourage me to have anything to do with that evil religion that Jesus has saved me from? There's a big argument in the church. This is the background of Corinthians, the book we read. And two factions emerge. There's those who know, the knowers, the people that know that idolatry is silly nonsense, it doesn't matter what you eat. And those who can't have anything to do with anything associated with that terrible lifestyle, that terrible way of worshipping false gods. And here's the surprising thing. Both sides are wrong. Both sides are wrong. Um, Think about it in terms of our levels of connection. One side thinks number two really matters. Present association. Um, That food is associated with an evil religion and I can't have anything to do with it as a Christian. The other side thinks that's nonsense. Of course it doesn't matter at presently associated. It's just food. Eat it. Uh, it'll come out that and they think number three is okay as well. Participation's probably all right as well. Um, but basically, it might sound familiar, they want to walk over the weaker view with the truth of the gospel. Just annihilate their view. Just force them to fall into line with the truth of the gospel. And that's where they've got it wrong. Now, it's taken a while to get to it, but have a look at 1 Corinthians 8. And I want you to see what we're talking about here. Because this is the background to dealing with issues of spiritual significance in our society as well. 1 Corinthians 8. Have it open. Page 1148. (laughs) 
With that background, it starts sounding a little bit more familiar, I hope, when Paul talks to this church with the two factions. He says, chapter 8, Now about food sacrifice to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge. That's probably what the knowers were saying. But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. When Paul says knowledge puffs up, he's not saying knowledge about God is bad. In fact, it's in the middle of a letter where he teaches lots and lots of knowledge about God, right? So he's not saying that. But what's he saying? He's saying, he's having a go at, the kind of person who has all their theology correct, but doesn't use that knowledge out of loving concern for other people, with sympathy and wanting to help other people with where they're at. In fact, if you can just walk over people with your superior spiritual knowledge, regardless of whether it's right, uh, you don't know as you ought to know because Christian knowledge is love-shaped. It's always love-shaped. It's always used according to love, directed towards the welfare of other people. So verse 4, So then about food sacrificed to idols, we know, we know, and this is right, that an idol is nothing in all the world. There's no significance, to, spiritual significance to an idol and that there's no God but one. Yes, there is one God. You're right. That's correct. But even there are so-called gods whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there's many gods and many lords, there's all these made-up things that people devote themselves to. Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father from whom all things come and for whom we live, and there's one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came uh, and through whom we live. It's not a matter if that's true for you, this is true for me. There's only one right answer. There's one God. Idols don't have real spiritual existence, and people devote themselves to false gods, even though they're not gods. What that means, if you look at our diagram again, is that spiritual space behind the idols is actually empty. There's no gods that live there. It's just empty. There's one God. He made everything. It's all his stuff. The whole world's his stuff. And that means food sacrificed to those gods is not spiritually defiled. It's just food. But, and it's a very, very big but, a lot of people, especially freshly converted out of idol worship, will have a lot of trouble swallowing that. Have a look at verse 7. Not, but not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food doesn't bring us near to God. We're no worse if we do not eat, and we're no better if we do. Friends, conscience is kind of your inner awareness of what's right and wrong. It's, it's more than just your head. It's kind of your gut feeling as well, and your you, you just sense of what's right. And it's trained over time. As a Christian, as you sit under the teaching of the Bible, your conscience should be trained to think more instinctively what God thinks. It's part of why we teach the Bible. If you've been brought up worshipping idols, though, uh, that's made a powerful impression on your conscience, and you can't help but make the association, well, any food that's been devoted to a false god is dedicated to that false god, and it is dirty to the Lord Jesus. You, you can't help but make that association. The truth is, all food belongs to Jesus. It's not spiritually dirty. But their perception has been trained to think otherwise. And the knowers, with their lack of love, have failed to understand how hurt these brothers and sisters are in Christ by using their freedom in this way. Of course we're right. Just do it. They've just got no sympathy for their background in idolatry. So verse 9, Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Maybe they'll grow in Christ and their conscience will be trained, but maybe not. For if someone has a weak conscience, sees you with all your knowledge, 
eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what's sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother and sister in Christ who's tempted and struggling, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge, your superiority. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. Christian freedom means that all things belong to Jesus and I am free to eat and I am free to choose not to eat. How do I make the decision? By what helps and protects other people's spiritual welfare. Not me, other people. Paul says he's willing to become a vegetarian if that's what it takes. Well, that's what he's calling out to us as well. If that's what it takes to protect the spiritual welfare of another person. Think of our levels of connection again. Paul says that number two is wrong. Present association with idolatry doesn't make something dirty. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't make it dirty in God's sight. It belongs to Jesus. But those who are clear in this point should also be clear that other people struggle with customs, traditions and stories that are connected to this kind of bad stuff. Those previous experiences were so formative, so profound and vivid that it's like handing a struggling alcoholic a bottle of whiskey. <laughs> Just don't do it. Look after the guy. And here's the wonderful thing. Here's where Christian community comes in. That isn't just their personal problem to manage. Their struggle with idols and food sacrifice to idols, that's the responsibility of their entire church family. Brothers and sisters, here is a really important point of application. When a Christian person responds strongly to you against a custom, a tradition or a story and you can't figure out why, do not scoff. (laughs) Please, ask them what concerns them. Possibly there's something going on in their past they're really struggling with. Possibly their conscience has been trained to make really unhealthy associations. Use your freedom in Christ for their good and not just to assert your freedom. That's what it's about. Um, Martin Luther, uh, struggling with this, uh, wrote 500 years ago, nearly, a Christian is a perfectly free lord of all, subject to none. I don't have to worry about food sacrifice to idols. It's all God's creation. It's all stuff that's good. I'll receive it with thanksgiving, thanks very much. There's a flip side. Because of love, a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all, of all, subject to all. I will only use my freedom for the benefit of other people. Now, have a look at, uh, at the book of 1 Corinthians and you'll notice he talks about idols. There's a big gap between in our two Bible readings and there's all this stuff in the middle. All this stuff in the middle isn't changing the topic. It's Paul talking about the way that he doesn't use his rights when it will help other people. So, for example, come down to chapter 919 and you'll just see an example of, of what I'm talking about. It's a, sort of an important bit. Um, this is how Paul, how, how love dictates how Paul uses his freedom to do to use anything in creation for the good of other people. He says, Though I'm free and I belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jew. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became under one not having the law. He just used his freedom to appeal to the life situation of all the people he's trying to serve. And if something was harmful for them, he could live with that. He could not use his right for their good. Have a look down at verse 22. To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. 
Now, before we come to our actual topic, have a look at his conclusion in chapter 10, verse 23. And the logic of how to deal with the issue of food sacrifice to idols is very straightforward once you've got all the points we've talked about under your belt. Um, Verse 23, he quotes them, I have the right to do anything, you say. Well, not everything's beneficial. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything's constructive or useful to build up people. No one should seek their own good but the good of others. So how do we do idle food? Well, eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It all belongs to Jesus, right? Don't worry about it. So if an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever's put in front of you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. If they've raised it, chances are it matters to them. Don't harm their conscience. I'm not referring to the other person. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. You know it's okay. They don't. Serve them with your freedom. The application at this point, there's more to come. Uh, There's important factors we need to bring to bear here. It's pretty straightforward for Halloween and Harry Potter. Number two, mere association with evil practices and idolatry does not make something unclean for Christian consumption. Uh, Food belongs to Jesus, festivals belong to Jesus, good story writing belongs to Jesus, and the gift of imagination belongs to Jesus. Receive his good gifts with thanksgiving and enjoy them. That's the freedom we have in Christ, but it's not so simple, because I've read at least one ex-witch, for whom Harry Potter, I suspect, will never be something acceptable, And if she was in my life, in my congregation, or just in my circle of friendships, I could not wave that book in front of her and say, look, I'm free in Christ, I can read what I want. That would be awful, that would be despicable. That is not just a book in her experience. And her problem, out of love, would be my problem. Love for my sister in Christ obligates me to restrict my own freedom for her sake. Maybe she'll change her opinion over time, maybe not. Similar thing with Halloween. Most people I know in Oran Park don't associate... Well, in fact, all people I know in Oran Park don't associate Halloween with evil stuff. They associate it with uh, fun, candy, connecting with neighbours. And all those things belong to Jesus. So I can participate in all those things. That's great. So if my culture gives me a custom that's socially acceptable opportunity to connect with neighbours and I'm free to do so, well, it's better than that, isn't it? I might actually use that because over here, what do we do... To, to reach people with the gospel of Jesus, we connect with them, care, communicate the gospel, call them to commit. Our society gives us an opportunity to, com- to con- connect with people in our community. It's socially acceptable on the 31st of October to knock on people's doors with your kids and say hello. I mean, of course I could do it. <laughs> it's a great opportunity. I'll become all things for the good of other people. It's not so simple if I know a person converted from witch- witchcraft and I need to be very careful on the weekend when witches traditionally celebrate Sarwin, that I would say it's just costumes and candy. Well, in their experience, it's not. So using our freedom in love will mean we do different things depending on the people in front of us and how it affects them. That's the freedom we have in Christ, and that's how we direct it. It's wonderful. And love dictates how we respond to other people. Now, friends, I know that's a lot of information, but I will misrepresent this topic if I don't give you two more points. Uh... (laughs) number three there on the chart present participation with evil practices here's the thing I have to say Christians must not participate in custom traditions or stories where those actions make us participants 
in other religions or, or idolatrous worship. I've skipped a bit of the passage, which is really important. Have a look at 10.14. Um, I don't want to skip a point that the Apostle makes in dealing with this topic because it's really important. Um, he says, therefore, therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? He's talking about the Lord's Supper. We, we, we celebrate Jesus together showing we're united with each other and with him. And he's not the bread that we break, participation in the body of Christ, because there's one loaf. We who are many are one body, body, because we all share in one loaf. Oh, am I reading the wrong bit? Oh, no, I'm not. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God, and I do not want you to be participants with demons. Now, it seems confusing. It seems contradictory to what we've said, right? Because we've just said that spiritual space behind idols, there's nothing there. There's a bit more to it than that. What stands behind the deception that is idolatry? What promotes that to human beings and says, follow this instead of the true and living God? Well, there's demons that stand behind that. There are spiritual powers that are real and which are out for your harm. They exist. They stand behind all religious deceptions, every alternative to Jesus, whether they're idols, whether they're religions, whether they're spiritualities. And to participate in any custom that is actively devoted to another God is participating in a false alternative to Christianity, and I can't do it. It's following the deceptions of demons. So I'm invited to an interfaith prayer meeting. Let's come and all pray to our gods. I can't do it. I will not treat your God as if they are a valid person to pray to. It's the deception of demons. I'm invited to a religious festival. Wear this hat, eat this food. My question will be, what do those actions symbolise to you? Does wearing that hat in this festival make me join in? Is eating that food, am I doing it because I'm honouring your God? Because I can't honour any God but the Trinity. Sure, they're just hats and food. And if that same hat or food was given to me in a non-religious context, I wouldn't care. I'd wear it, I'd eat it. But as soon as you say, religious festival, wear this hat, wear this food, I can't do it because it's participating in religious devotion to someone other than Jesus. Do you see the absolute crucial distinction between points two and three? Stuff that's associated, merely associated with religious practices in some way, isn't unclean, it's fine, assuming it doesn't cause somebody to stumble. But if it actually expresses participation in another religion, you can't do it. So my Muslim friend invites me to lunch and says, I'm buying lunch and I will eat his food. The same friend offers me the same food and says to me, uh, let's eat halal meat together to honour Allah. <laughs> I can't do it anymore. You've invited me to participate in a religion other than Christianity. And you're not just saying, this food's food, let's eat it. You're saying, let's honour Allah, and I can't participate. Very important uh, dis uh, distinction between the two things. So friends, if you have spooky friends who treat Halloween as something more than candy and that sort of thing, then ask them what the practices mean. And be very careful what you participate in. Because if it has spiritual significance or devotional value to them, I'd be running from it. I'd, I'd be saying, look, I can't, I can't join in with that. I serve Jesus. One final point. And I have to raise it because we're talking about Harry Potter, which is a fiction book. Um, my final point is be alert to the power of stories. Hobby horse alert. Uh, when I've heard people talk about Harry Potter, I've heard two extreme responses very often. 
It's of the devil, get rid of it. We've talked about that kind of response. The other opposite response I've heard is, come on, it's only a story. It's only a story. (laughs) That second response annoys me more than the first one, frankly. Um, Friends, stories are some of the most powerful forces in human history. They really are. (laughs) Stories in every generation shape hearts, minds, desires. They shape entire worldviews. They are some of the most important, powerful forces in human history. So we need to be alert to their power and influence, especially in the lives of our kids, and it'll be different for different people. So I'm, I'm not being alarmist. I love stories. I think it's a great gift from God. I think imagination is a gift from God. And Jesus loved stories. He told them all the time. But he told them all the time because they had power, because they appealed to people. They made a point. They changed people's attitudes towards the situation. I'll give you an example of what we're talking about so you get the power of fiction. Um, I'm quite interested in the history of theology. I know it's a weird subject to you. Um, and the influence that things have had on people over time. Some of the most influential Christian books in the history of the world have been fiction books. Um, many of them have taught true theology, beliefs about God. Most of them have had some misleading stuff in it, and many have been very misleading. Perhaps you'll notice some of the covers I'm talking about and know what they are. Um, Dante's Divine Comedy, with its powerful depictions of what hell, purgatory, and heaven are about. Milton's Paradise Lost and Paradise Regained, about the fall of Adam and Eve, and about the spiritual background of all that. These are really old ones. I'll give you some recent ones in a minute. The most published book in human history, apart from the Bible, Pilgrim's Progress, hasn't been out of print since 1678, has taught generations of Christians what it looks like to live for Jesus as we travel to God's celestial city. Very powerful. And I know that there are people in this room whose views of heaven and of what the death of Christ achieved have been shaped by the Chronicles of Narnia. It just has affected you because stories are powerful and they teach you things without you realising it. They change your affections without you realising it. And I'll just add, I think that book's great. There's also some pretty misleading stuff in the Chronicles of Narnia. So have your brain switched on. Be alert to it. The screw tape letters, about letters between devils about how they're turning people aside from Jesus. Great stuff. Don't think that it's true, though. It's an illustration. Um, this present darkness and piercing the darkness has taught people a really imaginative view of spiritual warfare, which is kind of cool, but it's... It's beyond the Bible. Um, Left Behind series has taught people a particular view of end time stuff, which I won't recommend, so I won't recommend the books, but it's been very powerful in recent years. The Shack. Oh my goodness, what blasphemous nonsense. Um, I, I'm serious. Uh, turn your brain on if you read that book. That, that is dishonouring God with the way it presents him and the way it presents the Bible. But a lot of people have read it and gone, this is a wonderful story. It makes me feel close to God. I've never felt so close to God as I have when reading The Shack. And I was saying, it's not the God of the Bible. Be alert to the power of fiction. It teaches you stuff without you realising it. There's no such thing as only a story because you get immersed in the experience and you don't evaluate it properly. It's easy to do. Have a look at 10.23. What's he say? Really important, thinking about fiction. Fiction is very powerful, both for good and for bad. Paul says, I have the right to do anything, yeah, but not everything's beneficial. I have the right to do anything, yep, but not everything is constructive. Not everything builds people up and turns them, helps them grow in Jesus. Among other things, we need to be alert to the power of stories and influence they may have on you and your kids for good and for bad. And that's for all stories, not just risque ones. Uh, my boy watches the Hercules movie. If I was in a culture that exalted Zeus, he wouldn't watch that movie. If I thought it was misrepresenting, developing views of God that are false in him, I will stop him watching it. 
And as life goes on, I'll continue to watch and try and detect how the things in his life, the fiction in his life, are influencing him. And him individually. It's not like you can get a rubber stamp and go, this book here is good for kids, stamp. It doesn't work that way. For some kids, it might be okay. For other kids, it could lead them to all sorts of things. Can Harry Potter leave my kids into witchcraft and demons? Yes, it can. Some kids, keep alert to it. Of course it can. Anything can. Be alert to your particular kids and how the particular influences of their life at this particular point in time are influencing them and keep watch over time at how they grow in Christ and what may mislead them, even if it seems harmless. Here's my conclusion. Um, Friends, there could be any number of reasons people have spiritual concerns about Harry Potter and Halloween, not just the ones I've mentioned. How will you know? How will you know these people here have spiritual concerns? By having real conversations. That's what the church at Corinth did. They had real conversations about things that hurt them, harmed them, and they were worried about. Uh, That took courage. It took people being good listeners. And it took a church of people who were ready to respond with the kind of love that leads us to joyfully give up our rights if it will help the spiritual benefit of other people. We need to be able to talk to each other and have real conversations, be ready to listen and ready to respond in love. How about I help, uh, pray that God would help us to digest all that and respond well to uh, the concerns people have. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that by his death and resurrection, thank you that by his exaltation to your right hand and he's Lord of everything, uh, all creation is ours. We share it with him. Thank you that everything's clean and good for our consumption if it's used rightly. We want to use our freedom well, though, Father, so we ask that you would please help us to love those around us, to be aware of the struggles of other people and to act in love and to restrict our own freedoms where it would serve other people. And today, Father, we also ask that you would uh, have mercy on us as parents, those of us who are raising kids. Help us to be wise, very, very wise, watchful and alert to the influence that all kinds of things have on our kids. Um, and please, uh, please help us to raise them to know Jesus and to serve him and to consume things that will build them up in Christ and not lead uh, them away from him. Amen.